Well, Dan commenced a new series uh, last Sunday entitled Family Values. And uh, Dan told us that uh, each and every family has its own traditions and values. And uh, one family will do things one way and another family will do things another way. And very often in these things, there are no rights and wrongs. We're just different and we do things differently. Now, I was thinking about this the other day and what are our family traditions? And I thought, well, yes, we, we, we do have them. And uh, our family traditions, or many of them at least, centre around the beautiful game. <laughs> no, we're not talking about football. We're talking about the other game, <laughs> rugby. For example, on a Friday evening at 8.45pm precisely, following Kids Club, Julie and I sit down for our Friday night rugby and curry. <laughs> First of all, you know, uh, most, uh, most families I know will uh, have their particular meals at particular times and uh, some families, it, for them it's fish on Friday, but not for us, it's curry on Friday, whether it's Madras or Rogan Josh or Balti. And by the time we walk home, the aroma of the curry has infiltrated every nook and cranny of our home and it has been cooking slowly all night. And then we sit down and then we watch Welsh rugby, which has been recorded earlier in the evening. You may say to yourself, well, what's different with Welsh rugby and English rugby? There's very little difference other than Welsh rugby is far better. <laughs> and, then, and then it comes to Boxing Day and we do much the same. After the Boxing Day meal is eaten, which is always something plus turkey, no surprises there. And the dishes are washed and we sit, round, uh, sit down around the television set and we watch the Boxing Day game between Ospreys, which are my team, and Scarlets, which are Julie's team. On S4C, so we have to do our own commentary. I can see you're very well impressed by this, uh, Jane. <laughs> and it, it's not just the traditions, but in our home we also have very different tasks. I cut the grass and trim the hedges. Julie plants the flowers and uh, prunes the bushes. I check the car. Julie sorts the washing. Julie does the dusting. I clean the windows. Julie cooks the dinner. I play with the grandchildren. <laughs> What's a job, isn't it? Someone's got to do it. And just as individual families have their own values and traditions, God's family also has its uh, values and traditions. And last week, Dan spoke, and he spoke very, very well, as he always does, and he focused on a family value, which is that we have been accepted, not rejected. Not rejected. And if you weren't here, get that talk on podcast. It was a great talk. That we have been accepted by God through Christ, who loved us when we were unlovely. He brought us to himself when we were far away from him. That we are that prodigal son that Dan spoke about last week, or prodigal daughter, embraced by the Father and celebrated, undeserving, yet we have been shown mercy, unworthy of the Father's love, yet in his sight we are highly valued and cherished. And that's what God is like, just like that father in the prodigal story. He is one who's arms are ever open to all of us. In God's family, that kind of acceptance, that 
warts and all, acceptance of others is a family value. And the Bible calls that grace. Now we're going to move on today to today's family value and it is useful, not useless. Like this clicker. No, it's come. I want to base our thoughts this morning on a New Testament story. A New Testament story which isn't particularly well known. Uh, It's in a book towards the end of the New Testament. It's only one chapter long and 25 verses in all. And it's a story that speaks very powerfully to us what God's family is like. And it's a great story. And it's one of my favourite stories in the Bible. But before we start reading that story together, together, let me give you a little bit of an insight to what's going on in this story, just to give you a brief outline. Well, that story is Philemon. Just move the slide on, please. Thank you. Uh, And this New Testament book is named after Philemon. Now, Philemon was a wealthy citizen from the city of Colossae. And he met Paul. We're not told how that was. Uh, And he became a follower of Jesus. And sometime later, he became a leader of the church that met in his home. Now, Philemon, like many other well-to-do household patriarchs in the ancient world, they owned slaves, and one of whom was named Onesimus. So Philemon was the master, Onesimus was his slave. And at some point, Philemon and Onesimus fell out with each other. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way, possibly stole money from him, and then he ran away. But where could this slave run to? A big city. Somewhere where he couldn't be easily found. Rome. Because there he could be anonymous as well as Onesimus. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for the kind groans. Eventually, Onesimus... Meets up with Paul, we're not told how or why they met. But Paul leads him to faith in Christ. And Onesimus, whose life is changed by the power of the gospel, became then a trusted assistant to Paul. And as much as uh, Paul would like Onesimus to remain with him, Paul had a legal and moral responsibility to send him back to Philemon. But more than that, I think that he also had a spiritual responsibility because Paul himself had been instrumental in both men, Philemon and the slave Onesimus, coming to trust Jesus. And he wanted to help them get reconciled. And that's where we're going to be picking up the story. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Philemon. If you've not got a Bible, it will come on screen uh, in front of you. And uh, we'll pick up more details, I'm sure, on the way. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Apphia, our sister, now that was probably Philemon's wife. And to Archippus, our fellow soldier, possibly his son. And to the church that meets in your home. Many of the earliest church met in homes, not in buildings like we have met here this morning in Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of all the Lord's people. Now, if you are used to reading the New Testament, you will know that many of Paul's letters start in this particular fashion, that he will include encouragement and prayers and thanksgiving for either the person or the church that he is writing to. But in reading this letter to Philemon, I sense that there is something else going on here. And I think that Paul is setting Philemon up. Verse 7, by the end of verse 7, that we can see on screen, I'm sure Philemon was probably asking himself, okay, Paul, thanks for the compliments. Wow, amazing things that you've just said about me. I really appreciate your kind words. But what do you want? How much is this going to cost me? You see... The reason I say that, because Paul is somebody who is pretty direct. He doesn't overemphasize sentiment. Now, if Paul had a wife, he didn't have a wife, by the way, but if he had a wife, he wouldn't have been the kind of 12 red roses kind of bloke. He probably would have bought his wife on their anniversary a steam iron or hedge trimmer. You know, that's the kind of bloke that we are dealing with, I think. Please, ladies, do not tell me that that's what you had for your birthday or anniversary present. He probably wouldn't have been a bloke that would have come to his wife and whispered sweet nothings in her ear. I imagine he would probably be more, look, I told you I loved you on the day we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> kind of bloke. <laughs> I might be misrepresenting Paul this morning, but that's what I read, okay? And now I understand this, man. So maybe it was just as well he didn't get married. Paul is plain talking, gets to the point quickly, no small talk kind of get, guy. He is real Yorkshire. <laughs> is anybody from Yorkshire here this morning? Yeah. Oh dear me, there's a fist uh, showing there. <laughs> I do apologise, Joyce, may the Lord bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. You know what I'm saying though, don't you? So here in verse 6... <laughs> I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. And you can almost hear the violins playing in the background here. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Then that comes to a, a real abrupt end. It's almost as if Paul says, right, I've had enough of this. He shakes himself out of it and he gets to the point. The big ask. And this is what this letter to Philemon is all about from verse 8. Oh, you moved it on already. Thank you. Verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. That's interesting, isn't it? In effect, what he's saying there is, Philemon, I'm going to ask you to do me a favour, but... I could force you to do this because I'm an apostle and you aren't. I, Paul, an old man 
and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son when I was in chains. In other words, Paul is saying that he led Onesimus to be a follow, become a follower of Jesus. And as again, I read this out loud to myself this week, I laughed. I read on Philemon's letter probably many hundreds of times, but I saw some things in it which really did make me laugh out loud. Uh, Paul's tactics, essentially. Because Paul has already told Philemon, I am not going to order you even though I could, but I'm going to appeal to your better nature. He now appeals to Philemon on the basis of his old age and imprisonment as an old man and as a prisoner for Jesus. Can you do this for me? Now, I think you should get those violins out again. I'm almost tempted to say that uh, Paul is taking Philemon on a bit of a guilt trip here. Then, verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful, uh, useful both to you and to me. I'll come back to that verse in a moment. Verse 12. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Again, I just sense that uh, Paul is playing the sympathy card, but you've got to admit it, he's good at this. Verse 14. Verse 14. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Yes, Paul. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, Paul has challenged this guy, Onesimus, to go back to Colossae, to go back to his uh, master, which was one scary thing for him to do. Because Onesimus, by going back to Philemon, put in jeopardy his freedom. Possibly his life was at risk. Because according to Roman law, Philemon could have had Onesimus punished or even put in prison or worse. Paul also challenged Philemon. And he makes a bold request to this man. And he asks him not only to forgive Onesimus for what he but you embrace Onesimus as a dear brother. Talk about going the second mile here. Paul is asking Philemon not just to forgive him, but to treat Onesimus as a social equal, which is way, way more than simply requesting that he should show Onesimus some kindness. It's freeing a slave and then treating this slave as if he were a member of your family. So why should Philemon do such a thing? Why should Paul ask Philemon to do such a thing? And the answer to that is, since God has accepted and forgiven Onesimus, so must Philemon do the same. The crux of the argument for Paul is, Philemon, isn't it better to have a brother in Christ than a friend, than one who was a former useless slave? So verse 17 Verse 17. Can you move that back, please? Thank you. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him 
as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now, there's a suggestion here that... Um, There's a suggestion that Onesimus might have stolen from his master. Then verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I think you're there before me, aren't you? This is absolutely hilarious. Paul is saying to Philemon, Philemon, you, you need to do this for me. I'm not going to mention that you owe your life to me. I'm not going to mention that it was me that led you to Jesus. I'm not going to mention that you owe me big time, Philemon. Oops, I just did. <laughs> Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, Paul really is some operator here. And even if in reading this this morning, we might think that Paul's methods are a bit suspect, his heart isn't. His heart isn't. He is doing what he is doing here for all of the right reasons. He wants these two men, two men that he led into faith to accept Jesus. He wants them to be reconciled. And I can just imagine, and sometimes when you read scriptures, you need to, you know, sort of read with imagination. I can imagine Philemon and his wife, Apphia, if she was, reading this letter that Paul had sent over their shredded wheat. Giggling to themselves, they love this old guy, Paul. After all, he was the one who introduced them to Jesus in the first place. Paul could do no wrong in their eyes. But they must chuckle to themselves over Paul's lack of diplomacy. He's not the most subtle bloke in the world, is he? Paul is clumsy. But they get what he's about. And they rejoice over the good news that their former slave, Onesimus, has now come to faith and he is a brother. Verse 22. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Now, you might think I'm a bit cynical this morning, but that sounds a little bit to me. You better do it because I'm going to be checking up on you. <laughs> yeah, perhaps I am cynical. I don't know. Once I'm out of this imprisonment, I'm going to be paying you a visit. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit. So let's go for a moment back to verse 11. Uh, in verse 11... We read there um, that formerly, writes Paul to Philemon, formerly he was useless to you, but now has become useful both to you and to me. 
Now, there's a wonderful pun which is going on here, which we don't catch in our English Bibles. The name Onesimus means useful. Now, that was a great name for a servant or a slave, if that servant or slave was reliable and competent. But Onesimus wasn't either reliable or competent. He was a runaway. He was probably a thief. Now, this man, who had a name which was useful, was in fact useless. And he was useless until he came to faith in Jesus, till he encountered Jesus, and then he became useful again. Became truly useful. His character matches his name. And that's what's going on here in verse 11. And this one story so encapsulates what Paul writes in his New Testament letters. Such as in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone. And the new has come. Irrespective of how dark and murky our past might have been. That in Christ we can have a new start. We can have a clean slate when we come to Jesus. The scriptures tell us that he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. A new day has dawned. In this story, Paul is actually acting out his own theology. And the reason that Paul can act, ask Philemon for such a big thing was because of God's amazing grace, which we've been singing about in our service this morning. That Paul regarded himself as a child, but he had his sins wiped. He was the glad recipient of God's grace. We all know the story. One day on that road to Damascus, when Paul was on a murder mission, Christ met with him and transformed this Jewish rabbi into a sent one. That's what the word apostle means, a sent one. And he was Christ's sent one to all non-Jewish world. And Paul knew that God can take a life, never mind how sinful, how corrupt, how immoral, and make that person brand new. God did it for Paul. God did it for Philemon. And now he has done the same for Onesimus. And Onesimus and Philemon are no longer slave and master, but they are brothers together in the Messiah. You see, they lived in a very divided world, much as ours is. But in their world, there were Jews and non-Jews who would have nothing at all to do with each other. As we've said on other occasions, that the Jewish man would pray in the morning, thanking God that he had been not born as a slave, a Gentile or a woman. And there was social division. Social division between free people and, and, and slaves and between men and women. And into this society, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, for there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, in Christ, those former divisions have been swept away. And Paul declares that the moralistic Jews are not superior to the Gentiles. And the sophisticated Gentiles are not superior to the Jews. And men are not superior to women. And the owners of slaves are no greater than the slaves that they own. In Christ, all those old barriers are dismantled, they're put away. And Paul writes in verse 16 of our reading there this morning, 
He writes of Onesimus as being no longer a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, I read those words again this week, and I just found them absolutely astonishing. No longer a slave, but a dear brother in the Lord. Onesimus, at the very least, ran the risk of having his sins branded on his forehead. But Paul reached out to him across this huge gulf, this moral, religious, social gulf that separated the two men. And he calls him a dear brother. Wow. That's grace. There's an old story, you might have heard it before, of uh, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated if anything was different and unique to the Christian faith, and they began eliminating possibilities. Some said it might be the incarnation, but then they knew of uh, other religions where versions of gods appeared in human form. Someone said maybe it's the resurrection. Again, some religions had accounts of return from death. And the debate went on until the great Christian scholar and philosopher C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. He asked them what the rumpus was all about. And they said that they were discussing what was unique to Christianity. And Lewis straight away responded with, that's easy. It's grace. And after discussion, the conference agreed with C.S. Lewis. The notion of God's love coming to humanity, free of charge, no strings attached, gratis, is absolutely unique. You see, the Buddhist has an eightfold path to spiritual enlightenment. The Hindus have the doctrine of karma. You have the Jewish covenant. You have the Muslim code of the law. Each of these offers a way to earn God's approval and to gain spiritual enlightenment. But only Christianity, only Christianity, dares to make God's love unconditional, which the Bible calls grace. Grace is unique to Christianity. And excuse my metaphor, but it's our trump card. Grace is the best gift that we have for this world. And we, as his people, are called to both proclaim and display grace in our lives. We're meant to um, proclaim the gospel, that God's love is unconditional, that we can't earn it, we don't work for it, all we can do is accept it in faith. But also to display that grace in our actions, loving those who don't necessarily deserve our love, as we extend our love to those who are undeserving. We are following the example of our Heavenly Father. And with the Apostle Paul, he does both. He proclaims grace, and we see that throughout all of his New Testament letters. But also, in this story that we are looking at this morning, the story of Philemon and Onesimus, Paul is also displaying grace. He wants to give Onesimus this second chance. Now, author Philip Yancey tells us, uh, he gives us that wonderfully helpful statement on grace. You would have come across it many times in this church, and in years to come, you'll come across it, I guarantee, many times again. You know what I'm going to say. It's that statement. There is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more than he does. And there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us less than he does. 
That, I believe, is absolutely key and it is central to our self-understanding and our, and our identity as Christians. And when you think about those words, and I'll leave them up on screen, make absolute sense. Let's reason this out. God's love is perfect, yeah? Yeah. Therefore, if God's love is perfect, it cannot be improved upon. If you're still awake, just nod. It cannot be enhanced. It cannot be upgraded. He loves us perfectly, not because he is a God who loves, but he loves us perfectly because he, he is love. He is the epitome of love. He defines love. He sets the standard for love. So, let me put it to you this way. Do something good. If we read our Bibles every day for the next year, and if we pray for three hours a day before we go to work in the mornings, perish the thought. And if we give 50% of our wealth away for the purposes of his kingdom, and if we lead 20 people to Jesus before the end of the month, you better get a move on. It's October next week. If we do all of those things, he cannot love us more than he does just now. God, are you getting this? Are you getting this? This is incredible. And the reason he can't love us any more than he loves us just now, even if we do all of those things is because his love to us is perfect. He cannot love us any perfecter. <laughs> I know there's no such word. And there's no such word because there's no such concept of a love more perfect than perfect. Easy to propose that God could love us would in that way would suggest that his love wasn't perfect in the first place. I'm not finished yet. If he were to love us less than he does right now at this moment because of something we have done to upset him, whether we have shouted at the wife or kicked the cat, or not read our Bible for 10 days, or not prayed for three months, or worse, then that would make him fickle and unchange unchangeable. His love would be conditional, not unconditional. It would be merited, not unmerited. And that is why I love that statement so much. And you see, that's our message to the world. It's a message of grace. God is still in the business of changing lives. If I didn't believe that, I would not have spent most of my adult working years declaring a message which I believe is the greatest message and the most important message that this world has to hear. And our family value is based on grace, that we were useless 
But now, because of his grace, we have become useful. And there'll be some of you here this morning, I'm sure. There'll be some of you in this building this morning that you have been written off. You have been written off perhaps by your parents or by an older sibling or by a teacher at school or by your friends, some friends. And they have said you will never make anything of your life. You're a waste of space. You're useless. And you have heard these words coming at you many, many times over the years. And those words have settled deep in your heart. And that is now what you believe about yourself. I'm useless. I will never make anything of my life. That is a lie. That is a lie. We have a God who transforms useless into useful. He is the one who has turned water into wine. But much more importantly than that, he is the one who can turn our despair into dancing. And the one who can turn an alcoholic into a loving husband and a good father. He is the one who can turn a soul and make him a Paul. And he is the one who can transform a useless, runaway thief like Onesimus and make him a glorious trophy of God's grace. We have a God who repairs damaged people. A God who mends shattered lives. A God who restores broken relationships. He brings hope to desperate people. He brings purpose to those who are empty. He brings He brings peace to the troubled. He heals the despondent. He brings life to the spiritually dead. He forgives the guilty. He gives wisdom to the foolish. He enables the incapable. And he empowers the powerless. And I want to say to you this morning, what an awesome God we serve. Let's give him praise. Thank you, Lord. We're going to sing a great song now to close our service this morning. If a band would like to come back. And there are two lines in it which says, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That's always good, isn't it, to declare truth. And this one truth, I think, is as important as any other truth. There are so many people who live their Christian lives, not as sons and daughters, but they live their Christian lives as slaves. They live their lives according to the lies that have been given to them in the past, that they're no good, that their lives will never amount to anything, that they're a waste of space, that they're useless. And as we declare the words of this song this morning, in a sense, we are singing them out in faith and we are declaring to God and to everybody else the lie that has been fed to us is a lie. In other words, we are putting the record straight. 
We're replacing that lie with truth. That we are, as that old hymn said, we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. That we are sons and daughters. That we are loved. We are special. We are precious. And we are useful. Let's stand together and praise God.